Um, what we like to do for our newcomers who are trying to figure out how to get connected or you want to know more about our church is we just encourage you to go to our info booth. And we have, uh, we have a packet for you to fill out, but we got a gift for you. we got a couple gifts for you. One is a free book that we uh, fi- have found endearing that we love. So we want to hook you up with some free literature. And then um, we also have a free cup of coffee in our coffee shop, which is totally remodeled. I don't know if you've noticed, but it's really gorgeous in there. Great place to hang out and have a cup of joe. So uh, make sure you stop over there and get connected. And then uh, by way of announcements, there's a couple things we want to make you aware of. One is we're doing a hoedown, a holy hoedown. And uh, yeah, we're going we're gonna to dance. We got, a, uh, we got an actual, what, are they, what is it called? A, 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 a square dance caller. So it's somebody that tells you how to dance. Okay, only... <laughs> This is definitely only a white person problem where you need somebody to tell you what to do on the dance floor. So we want to invite you couples to come. We want to invite those of you who are single to find somebody that you're interested in. Invite them to come. And uh, we're going to have a good time. July 19th. Signups again are at the hub right out here at the info booth. Uh, And then we're launching a new ministry called Catalyst for our college-age individuals, those who are exiting high school and those of college age, it's going to be two times a month. And their first meeting is this Friday, so we want to make you aware of that as well. So uh, if you're of that age group, please make sure you take an opportunity uh, to step uh, into that and to sign up for that. Um, with that said, <clears throat> we're going to be in Ruth chapter 4, and if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there. And then if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to read along with us. Just raise your hand, keep your hand up, <clears throat> and uh, you can turn there and you can read along with us. Now, I'm going to say this up front. Some of you um, may already be aware of uh, some changes that are taking place in our ministry. And if you're not, we're going to take some time this morning to address some changes that are occurring uh, for us as a ministry. Hey, good to see you guys. Um, and uh, and we're, um, so I'm, I'm not going to, I, I kind of got a lot of information that I want to pack in to this one message. And, um, you know, for myself, after I do a sermon like I do in the first service, I, I always do a little bit of self-evaluation and how good I did and how bad I did. And then if I, if I did really well in the first one, I try to duplicate it, and then I don't, and I mess it up. So the second one's not as good. And then sometimes I do a better job in the second service. And so all that to be said, I'm going to try to do a good job this morning uh, tackling two major things uh, that we need to do. One is to close this beautiful book out, and another one is to handle some behind-the-scenes stuff that we're dealing with here as a church that will tie in uh, to the message. And so... We have taken our time walking through the book of Ruth, the, what we consider an Old Testament book, uh, Old Covenant book, uh, that w- covers a story of a woman who was a Moabite woman who ended up marrying an Isra- Israelite man. And she ended up getting into this marriage because her mother-in-law, Naomi, and her father-in-law, Elimelech, lived in Israel. There was a famine in Israel, and they ended up moving from Israel taking their life into their own hands, not listening to God, moving from Bethlehem, the house of God, to Moab, a house that was of the ungodly, a false-worshipping society, a pretty gnarly place, and they end up intermarrying there, and uh, the family just just has a horrible uh, travesty happen to them. Elimelech passes away, both of their sons pass away, and Ruth, who's a Moabite woman, is now left as a widow. And here's all you need to know if you haven't been here uh, for the last few weeks, uh, and, and as we cover just the message this morning, Ruth is kind of a picture of a lost soul. She's somebody that kind of, for us, represents somebody who is without God. 
somebody who's living life outside of the love of God, somebody who's lost. And if you remember, Ruth starts to, she enters into Bethlehem and she starts to glean from the fields and she meets a man by the name of Boaz. And Boaz is a picture for us of Jesus. And Boaz ends up uh, taking care of her, even though she's a Moabite woman. And then Ruth, Ruth in chapter three, she sneaks into Boaz's room. And as she sneaks into his room while he's sleeping, she uncovers his feet. She lays down at his feet and uh, he wakes up and she basically says, will you marry me? And he says, whoa, hold up. And, uh, and then he says, no, actually, there's somebody that's else that's supposed to uh, probably redeem you, save you. And it's another relative that's closer to you in the family. And so you should, you should go to him at first. We need to see if he will take you and take the land that you have. And then if he doesn't take you, he says, I'll redeem you. So that's where we pick up in chapter 4 is Boaz in chapter 4 is going to go to the gate. And as he goes to the gate, the entrance of the city, where, right where everyone would pass through, it was the place actually, it was, the gate of the city was kind of like the courthouse of the city. It's where all transactions would take place, all legal kind of mumbo jumbo would take place at the gate. And so he decides to go to the gate. And as everyone's exiting to find this near kinsman to let him know, hey, uh, Ruth uh, is someone maybe you should marry and there's a field for you to take over. So uh, we're going to see how Ruth ultimately is redeemed. And so before we read, the, the big picture this morning is the idea of redemption and how redemption occurs. Everyone say redemption. This is kind of just a big word that's used within Christianity that is defined like this. It's, it's to compensate for a defect, to buy back or to win back, or to free someone from captivity, specifically with a ransom. So think of kind of a, you know, in a terrorist threat, they take a fugitive, and then there's a deal. There's a ransom that would take place. Pay $10,000, you can get the person back. That's what it means to be redeemed. Biblically, what we're talking about, all the way from the Old Testament, is when the children of Israel needed to be redeemed, ransomed from, uh, from Pharaoh himself. In the New Testament, we see the idea of redemption is broadened, and that you and I are slaves to this world. We're slaves to a kind of mentality that we can't get out of. We're slaves to sin, the Bible would define, that we can't get out of unless someone comes and buys us out of our slavery. So here is the reality that exists within humanity. So so we recognize that every week here, there are people who come to our church who don't know Jesus. And it's true. I I can't share everyone who they are because it would be rude of me to do so. But I can tell you there are people who come every week who are exploring what Christianity is is and what it means. And the idea of redemption, for those of you who have never experienced Jesus, or if you're here wondering why in the world would I worship Jesus, it really comes down to this truth. Everybody in society, whether they believe in God or not, worships something. We we are bent uh, by nature to give ourselves, to give our attention and our adoration to worship something. The Bible calls it idol worship or false worship. And so when you say, well, wait a minute, I don't worship stuff. So, so here's a way to find out if you worship something other than God. Simply answer the question, if someone removed something from your life that you, could, that you feel you couldn't live without, if someone removed that from your life, could you live? So I've heard people say things like this before. If I, all kinds of things. If I, if I couldn't ski, I, couldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to live. If I couldn't snowboard, I wouldn't want to live. 
If, if I couldn't raise children, I wouldn't want to live. If I couldn't have sex with whoever I want, I wouldn't want to live. If I can't do what I want on the internet, I wouldn't want to live. If I can't have alcohol, I wouldn't want to live. If I can't take drugs, I wouldn't want to live. If I can't take certain whatever it is, like if, if you have taken anything that you feel you can't live without, that is something that you worship, that you've given your life to, that inevitably will fail you. Inevitably, when, if you worship skiing, one day you will blow out your ACL and you won't be able to ski anymore. One day, one day you're going to have to hang up the skis. One day you're going to have to give up all of those things that I just mentioned. And, and at its worst case scenario, some of those things aren't life giving at all. Some of them are life taking, right? If you say, I can't live without alcohol, alcohol will eventually strip from you your identity, strip from you your life force. It will steal from you and it will kill you. And Jesus says that. He says that in the New Testament that when you basically you give your life to something, it will steal from you and kill you. But if you give your life to Jesus, if you worship Jesus, he's life-giving to you. He doesn't steal from you. He gives to you. So Jesus has come to pay with ransom, as Revelation 5.9 says, with his blood to ransom people, again, Revelation 5.9, from people from every language and every nation. So Jesus himself has declared, I will, I will shed my blood for you, purchase you from the slavery of no longer having to live according to the slavery of the rest of the world. That's why I would tell you it's better to be a Christian, a Bible, grace-believing Christian, than anything else because Jesus says, listen, it's not going to be about being, your life being taken from you. If you come to me, I'm going to give you more life, and I'm going to give it to you more abundantly. So when you ski, it's actually better than if you do it with Jesus than if you did it without Jesus. Trust me, okay, I, I don't ski, but I, I hear that if you do it with Jesus, it's better with Jesus than without Jesus. What I can tell you, though, for my story, the only thing people ask me all the time, they say, what is it that you do with your free time? I lift weights, and I hang out with my children. That's it. That's all the time I have in the world between everything else I have going on. And I've lifted weights almost my entire life. I've done it without Jesus, and I've done it with Jesus. And in regards to my own personal things that, that we do that are fun, whether it's eating or drinking or whatever the Bible says do under the glory of God, it's always better with Jesus because it doesn't take from you. And if anybody's been a gym rat like I have over the years, you know there are people who go to the gym because their identity is in the gym. Right? Have you ever heard of lat syndrome? Imaginary lat syndrome? It's a true thing. Imaginary lat syndrome. It's when a skinny guy walks in the gym like this. It's a real thing. It exists, okay? Those are the guys, they walk in the gym, you know your identity is attached to your weightlifting, not to Jesus. All that to be said, Jesus has come to redeem you from that which is life-stealing and to give you greater life. Now, as we tie this into the book of Ruth, we're going to see the reality of how Ruth is ultimately redeemed out of her trouble, out of her pain, out of her sorrow, out of her depression, out of all of her trials and tribulation, how is she redeemed? Let's pick up the book here uh, this morning. If you would, stand with me as we honor God's word from chapter 4 of Ruth, the tradition we have to honor the Lord and reading of his word. And I'm going to bounce around a little bit <clears throat> just uh, for time's sake. Like I said, we've got a couple things we want to do. Now, verse 1, chapter 4, Boaz had gone up to the gate and he sat down there and behold, the redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by, came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. 
And he turned aside and he sat down and he took ten men of the elders of the city and he said to them, sit down. And so they sat down. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Jump down to verse 13. Boaz takes uh, the redemption of Ruth. He marries her. And in verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife, and he went into her. And the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said, the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you to stay without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer. This is the idea of redemption here. A restorer of life, a nourisher of your old age, and for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you. Remember, she lost two sons in the beginning of chapter 1, and now the love between her and Ruth is more to her than seven sons as, he, as she has given birth to this young little boy. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap, and she became his nurse. This is the word of the Lord. And the church said, amen. You may be seated. So you can see the great redemption. There's just an incredible contrast between the loss of life in chapter 1 and then the giving of life and the movement of life in chapter 4. It truly is a message of sorrow, moving from sorrow and moving to joy. And I've stated to you over the last several months that I think I think and believe God God's trying to do that in some of us in our church, and he's trying to do that in our lives, that we have had sorrow, and some of us have had pain, and some of us are still dealing with it. And ultimately, as we worship God and we recognize the redemption of Jesus Christ, he wants to move us from depression into a place of joy. He wants us to be focused on that which is good and that which is a blessing and see that in the midst of trial, in the midst of tribulation, in the midst of difficulty, that God has a plan for us. And the ultimate plan for us is not only not only a, a, a redemption of our soul, but a redemption towards eternity. That Jesus has saved us, not just for now, though that that's true. He's redeemed us away from the thinking of the world, right? I mean, if, if, you, are, if you have been a Christian for a period of time, you know that you start to begin in your walk with God, you start to begin to think differently and to see things differently. And so when you talk to other people about how they live their life or how they invest their money or how, how they do things in their life, you know as a Christian it just doesn't fit for you. It doesn't work for you. It, it, and, and you recognize that it's life-giving to you, and you don't get trapped up in all of, all of the mess. I'm listening to a book right now called, um, uh, Jeff Gilpin recommended it to me, called in, in the, I think it's called In the Age of Outrage. Is that the right title? Christians in the Age of Outrage. Here's the, I've only, I'm only a little bit into it. Here's the whole premise of the book. Christians, uh, in some ways, have fallen into the trap of thinking like the world. Instead of thinking moderately and intelligently and graciously, they just get angry like everybody else does. That, 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 that's, we live in the day of outrage, where, where in essence, when somebody says, says on social media that they have a particular thought or stance, we are quick to say, that's ridiculous. That is asinine. Who thinks that way? Why would you live that way? That is cultural kind of non-biblical thinking, to be upset 
and angry and volatile in your reaction to something that you don't agree with. That is, that is what social media, for the most part, is designed to do. It is designed, first of all, let's be clear, this might be new to some of you, it's designed to sell you stuff. Is this news to anybody? And how, do, how in the world are they going to sell you stuff if you're not on the platform? And how are they going to get you on the platform? Well, two ways. One is ego and pride. Look at me. Look at what I do. Look at how great my life is. How many of you posted stuff on the 4th of July about how great it was? Right? Anybody? Anybody? No? Some of you aren't on, the, some of you aren't on there. Some of you did. Let's be honest. And, and it can feed ego a little bit. And then, and, then, and then some of us get on there just to be, just to check. And I've done this. I'm guilty of this. I have people in, in the Christian community, people in, in our community that I have purposely blocked on social media. Because I don't want to read it. But you know what I do every now and then? Well, I want to see what they're saying. And then I look them back up. And then I'll look and I'll go, I can't believe they think that way. That's cultural kind of thinking. It's not gospel thinking. It's not redemption thinking. It's not reconcile, reconcil, reconciliation kind of thinking. It's just getting angry. It's just getting upset. And it's not helping anybody. What we have in the culture of America is people with a lot of opinions who are not willing to actually do anything about their opinions other than just voice them. That's a problem. Because Jesus showed up and not only did he preach a gospel of redemption and a gospel of reconciliation and redemption, he actually did something about it. He actually did something, and he engaged those that are lost. I want you to note something in the text here and how Ruth is saved and how she isn't saved. First of all, take note that Boaz, who's a godly-fearing man, he loves God, he knows the law of God, and he, he goes through everything that is necessary to actually find out if he is allowed by the law of God to actually redeem and marry Ruth. First of all, notice in chapter 3, he doesn't take advantage of the situation with Ruth in his room. He is self-controlled. And he says to her, well, there's a process that we have to go through according to the law of God where I actually have to go to the near kinsman. I have to let him know that he can purchase this land and that he can actually redeem you and he could be your redeemer. And, the, and in fact, the Bible actually teaches that in order to do this, elders needed to be present and there needed to be a whole process. And so he comes and he's, he gets 10 elders, he sits down, and he goes through the process of the law, and he says, will you redeem Ruth? Now, there are theologians who've made the connection between New Testament and Old Testament and have stated that the, the number 10 is an interesting number, 10 elders, as Boaz is going through the process of the law, and that the 10, the 10 is a representation of actually the law itself. So we talk about, Christians, the law of God. How many of you... How many of you would feel comfortable standing up in your seat right now and reciting all the Ten Commandments? Those of you who are giggling are like, yeah, good luck, right? We say it's important, and in fact, one of the things that, that I think uh, is interesting about the law is how much we as Christians lean into the law of God, the do's and the don'ts of the law of God or of Scripture, and we forget grace. See, what I think... Uh, God is trying to teach us not just in Ruth, but also in the New Testament, especially in the New Testament, is that the law of God is never sufficient to save anybody. Though Boaz went through the process of the law of God, the law was insufficient to actually stand up and actually redeem Ruth and save her. In Deuteronomy 25, we're actually told that if a kinsman refused in this situation, 
If a kinsman refused to meet his responsibility to the family, such as this case, and he refused to marry Ruth, the law said that he was to be spat upon for doing it. Then his shoe, and this happens in the text I didn't read, or read to us this morning, his shoe was to be removed from his foot, signifying that he was walking away from his responsibility, that he was a heel and that he had no soul. <clears throat> Here's the deal. This unnamed man was more interested in what he could gain from the law of God than actually ministering to the poor. Another way to put it is he was interested in the ministry to the poor as long as there was personal benefit to it. This is the reality of so many Christians within Christianity today. This, what I'm sharing this morning, is we're just tip, dipping our toes a little bit into what we're going to be going through in a few weeks when we start the book of Galatians. See, one of my pet peeves in Christianity, one of the things that bothers me about Christianity is when Christians start to think that by what they do for God, somehow, somehow God owes them or somehow that's the blessing of God. You have people who come to church who think that by going to church, they go to church because, because that's what they do or because God will react or respond to them because they're doing it. Are you with me this morning? There are a lot of people who are more interested in what they can get from God than, God, than actually getting God himself. And so what happens is you have Christians who, who think that if they tithe or they serve or they do certain things, that that's what Christianity is. It's all about what you do. It's all about your service. And when you do that and you do it well, guess what happens? You get really prideful. You get really arrogant. And you say things like this. Whenever you see somebody do something that you think isn't, isn't holy or, or, or if you see someone do something you don't think is biblical and you say things like this, I, I can't believe they would do that. Here's some that work within our Christian circles. I can't believe they watch Fox News. I can't believe they watch CNN. I, I can't believe that. I, why would anybody, anybody listen to that garbage or that smut, those, those lies? Can we, can we be honest about something as well? Do you know what news companies, all of them, even your sacred Fox or CNN, you know what they're interested in? Selling you something. And how do they get you to tune in? They get your emotions. They get you ramped up. And in that book, Christians in the Age of Outrage, that I just mentioned, it, it talks about how, how Christians uh, do, do themselves no favors by only listening to their side of the story and never being willing to actually learn something new and understand the other side of the story, understand, especially as Christians, how God is at work on both sides of the spectrum. Can, can, we, can we just be honest? It's not, I know it's not necessarily politics time and we're not voting for president, you know, next week or anything like that, but can we just, can we just be honest and say that, that Jesus loves Republicans and he loves Democrats? Can you say that? Remember what I talked about idol worship? If you can't, well, you just, you just were introduced to one of your idols this morning. I just introduced you to something that is false worship. If you can't somehow cross that fence and say, you know what, Jesus is for you, and he loves you. This is, this is the, the pit that Jesus got stuck in. Hey, Jesus, uh, I got a coin for you. Do I give it to God or do I give it to Caesar? It's a political trap. And Jesus answers it elegantly. Give to God what is God's. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. You know what he's saying? He's saying the image on the coin, that's the image of Caesar. So give that image back to Caesar. The image that is on you is God's. Give your life to God. That's what he's saying. And when you think of the radical grace of God, that, that we're, not, we're not saved by what we do, we're saved by love. And this is what Boaz does. He comes in, he does what the law can't do. He saves Ruth 
with his love, not the law. See, the math didn't work for the first guy. The first guy was like, well, well, wait a minute. If I marry her, I get the field, right? Yeah. But if I marry her and I have kids with her, then that field muddies up my inheritance for my other children, right? Yeah. Okay, I don't want it. I don't want it then. But for Elimelech, he said, you know what? He, he, had, he had a love for her, and he was motivated, first of all, by a love that he had for God. It's kind of like um, the story of uh, William Gardner. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of him, but he was a, a missionary in Cairo during 1873 to 1928. And this was his prayer in his journal. He, he prayed. He was a single man like Boaz was, and he was praying for a wife. You can find journal entries for him just praying for God's right person for him. And he says this. He says, God, I pray that I may be a man and have a heart one day pure and noble. He says, I want my heart to be pure, God. I want my, my, my heart to be noble, that, that one day, God, that my heart would be owned by a woman's heart. It's a radical statement. I want my heart to be owned by another human being. But, but, but then he prayed this, that I may come near to her, but in order for that to happen, God, draw me nearer to you than to her, that I may know her, but make me to know you more than her, that I may love her with a perfect love of a perfectly whole heart, cause me to love you more than her. See, what, what William knew is he said, listen, in order for me to really love my wife like Boaz was going to love Ruth, he recognized I have to love God first. That's grace. Not because God does anything for me, not because God responds for me, but, but because God is an awesome God. He's an amazing God. He's a gracious God. And because he's already died on the cross for my sins, because he's already been raised from the dead, I'm willing now to pay the price. And that's what Boaz did. He paid the price, just as Jesus paid the price for you. See, we do ourselves a disservice. We walk into the room, we go, you know what? I'm worth it. I'm worth it. Isn't there a song like that? I'm worth it. Because of, because of who I am, I'm, I'm, I'm important, I'm special, I'm, I'm unique, so, so I'm worth it. And that, that isn't the reality. The reality of it is, is that you're not worth it. None of you have done anything for God that would make God die for you. Let's be honest. No one in this room has done anything so just, so noble, and so awesome that you are worthy of dying for. But because he loved you, and because his image was pressed upon you, he journeyed from heaven to earth to pay the price for you. Isn't that amazing? Fourth of July, which was yesterday. Wasn't it yesterday? Was it yesterday? No, it was the day before. Four kids, too much sun. Days start to run together. Um, I was having a conversation with one of the gals from our church, and she was talking about the gospel, and she used Martin Luther as an example who, who I deeply appreciate any words from Luther because Luther was part of one of the reasons why you and I are here this morning. And he was, he was the guy who awakened. He reawakened the church back to this idea of grace, that you're not saved by law. You're not saved by giving to the church, and you're not saved by sitting down next to a pastor in a booth. You're, you're saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. And Luther said, you know, when you preach the gospel, this was what she was telling me this week. She said, when you preach the gospel, it's kind of like spitting in the wind. You ever do that? Sometimes I've done it out, out of my car. You lean forward instead of sideways. It's a mistake. Right? When you spit in the wind, it goes out and it goes, wha-bam! 
and smacks you in the face. And, and, and I think what she was alluding to and what I think Luther was alluding to is oftentimes when you preach the gospel of God's grace, when you preach the gospel to people who don't know Jesus, sometimes it's just like that. It's just like spitting in the wind. And Luther basically said for 1,500 years, that's basically what was happening to the gospel, man after man, woman after woman, person after person. Those who were awakened to the gospel of grace, they just kept preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they were persecuted for it. They were murdered for it. The message I'm preaching to you this morning is, first of all, it's one of the reasons Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross. The kind of people he invited into the kingdom of God, prostitutes and IRS collection agents. Those are the first people invited in. People that were on the fringes, people who, who were put out of the city, such as lepers, that don't belong in society. Jesus has always been about taking the outsider and bringing them in to be the insider. That's what Jesus is about. And Luther said for years, it was just like that, spitting in the wind with no real results. And he said, I got lucky one day. God just shifted the wind, and a reformation occurred because of the goodness and the grace of Jesus Christ. God used Luther and so many others, possibly even you, people in your life, to teach you and to share with you that you are saved not by what you do, not by anything that you have done or anything that you can do, but because of everything that Jesus Christ has done. My friends, when you get this, it opens everything up to you in the sense of understanding how much God is for you in spite of you. And it is the most humbling, but also the most beautiful thing that you can find in all of Scripture. Tim Keller says, says it like this, the law, the law of God simply shows us what human beings were built to do, to worship God alone, to love their neighbors as themselves, to tell the truth, keep their promises, forgive everything, act with justice. When we move against these laws, we move against our own natures and happiness. Disobedience to God sets up strains in the fabric of reality that only lead to breakdown. And God alone is the only one who can fix that. You're not able to do it on your own. Galatians 3.24 says, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came. What it literally meant is that the, the law does two things for us as Christians. None of them save you. That's where the Pharisees got in trouble. The Pharisees took 10 laws, made it into 600 and something laws. And then Jesus came and said, those 600 and something laws is ridiculous because really all of the law is summarized in two things, love God and love your neighbor. And so, so when we see the, the, the law for us now, it's not to save us, it's to do, number one, is to show us who God is. It's to show us the perfection of God. It teaches us about God. It teaches us that God does not murder. He doesn't covet. He doesn't steal. He's perfect in every single way. That's what the law does. The Ten Commandments and everything else beyond show us that God is perfect and holy in every single way. Then, then it shows us that, yes, we're supposed to live that way, but more importantly than living that way is the reality that you can't live that way. See, the law of God is the teacher that comes into the schoolroom and says, you can't do the math. It's like Einstein coming in saying, E equals MC squared. Explain it to me. And no one but Einstein can. Right? It's, it's the idea that, that God is saying, listen, here's the way that people are supposed to be. This is how you're supposed to operate. This is how you're supposed to live. You want to see a perfect government? Yep, Ten Commandments. That's it. You want to see a perfect world? Ten Commandments. That's it. And here's the reality. Nobody, not you, not me, not my perfect little kids. They're not perfect. Nobody can do the Ten Commandments. So then Jesus shows up and he says, okay, okay, you can't do Ten, you definitely can't do 600 and something, so I'm going to make this really, really, really easy. I'm going to give you two things, and if you can do them perfectly, you'll go to heaven. You want them? 
You want the two? Love God with all of your heart, your strength, and your mind. I'll also love your neighbor that way. How you doing? How you doing, church? Some of, <laughs> some of you are, are, are thinking about your idol, which is food right now, and you're so far from it. Some of, you, some of you are like, it's great that it's summer, but I can't wait for ski season. Some of you are distracted even right now in the room. You can't even do it right now. I could yell. I could scream. I could jump up and down. I could dance for you. Please. Oh, Lord. That, that shot back in my face. That's spitting in the wind. I think you get my jest. You get my point. It is impossible for any human being to do what is necessary to receive their redemption and their freedom in Jesus Christ. It is only fully and completely something that can be done because of what Jesus has done. You see, the gospel operates on a completely new kind of math. As one author says, indeed, part of the message of the book of Ruth is that God's kingdom operates on a different kind of calculus, a new math, in which the way to fullness runs through emptiness. Mr. So-and-so, speaking of the near kinsman, he didn't do that kind of math, so the numbers didn't add up for him. He clung to what he had, and in, the con- and in consequence, he lost something greater, something he never dreamed of. You see, the near kinsman calculated the risk to follow God's way to help the widow and to help the poor. He calculated the path, and it didn't work out for him, so he missed out in the story of redemption. The author goes on to say, Naomi, by contrast, if she had not first lost everything, we would never have known about her, and she would never have come to appreciate Ruth's true worth or to grow in her own understanding of the Lord. She had to lose her two sons to appreciate the one who is better than the seven sons. The crucible of suffering, painful though it was for her, was necessary for her spiritual growth and her place in God's plan. You see, if you follow the whole book, if there was no famine and immigration, there would have never been a return of Ruth. No Ruth, no marriage to Boaz. No marriage, there would have been no baby Obed. No Obed, no Jesse, no Jesse, no King David, no King David, no Jesus, no Jesus, no salvation. Jesus' way to salvation is to take the weak, the frail, the broken, the oppressed, the outcast, the marginalized, bring them into the group and magnify his name. That's the glory of God. That's the goodness of Jesus. If you feel like you don't fit in, that means you fit in. If you feel like you deserve to be here, we need to have a different conversation. Because we've been brought from the outside into the kingdom of God. And for that, we are eternally grateful. It's why we do everything that we do. It's why we do VBS for kids. It's why we do a youth program. It's why we do free counseling. It's why we take part in marriage counseling. It's why we hang out with kids in the nursery. It's why we do everything that we do in the community, whether it's giving boots away to kids who need it, or whether it's being down at the the homeless shelter down the way and serving there. It's why we do everything that we do. It's why we greet. It's why we hug. It's why we walk together. It's why we do community groups because Jesus has been good to bring us from the outside and bring us on the inside. Amen for that. So this morning, I mentioned we had a couple things to do. One was to conclude Ruth. That is the conclusion. And I'm not sure it's the world record, Brad, but if it is, I proudly accept the, uh, 
the award. I don't know what kind of it comes with, but. <clears throat> um, so some of you are aware of a change, and the change ties into the message. It's just something that God did by, by grace. But um, John Amon's been pastoring here for several years, and uh, he wants to come and communicate to you what God has done here at SBC and a change that's occurring in his life. And so if you would, please welcome our youth pastor, John Amon. Morning. Uh, this is round two for me. The first one, I pay to those who are in the morning service. Uh, this will be emotional for me and my wife. And I just want to be sharing with you guys about what God's been doing in our family and also through Easter Bible Church and share a little bit of my story. Um, about a month and a half ago, I was driving to Reno. I was by myself. And had an overwhelming sense of God speaking to me, and I started crying uh, all by myself as a man crying in my car. And um, it was a very emotional time because I felt like the message God was saying to me is, you need to leave Truckee. And um, that was hard. And, um, and just kind of pushed that away. That I don't, why would I do that? That doesn't add up. Um, so a couple weeks went by, and we were over at the Austin's family's house with uh, another uh, family we were close with, and God just opened up a bunch of spiritual conversations and honesty, and as the other men were sharing, um, that same heaviness came back of God speaking to me. He says, you need to give it up. You need to leave behind what I gave you. And uh, just start bawling like crazy. I'm like, this is, this is dumb. <laughs> Like, I don't want to be doing this. This is just gut-wrenching to think about. Uh, everything I love is, feels like it's all here in Drucky. Everything I love is in this church. All the relationships I've been, like, built for the past 10 years has been you guys. And so I finally told Sam that what's been going on, and we we're just on the verge of going on vacation about a week and a half ago. I said, well, now it's time to probably start praying that God would speak to both of us. Uh, and so vacation, and we're just like, well, let's just be very intentional and seeking what God wants us to do as we are away from Truckee. And so in some of our conversations, we brought up the story of Abraham, that God called Abraham. Uh, I want you to pick up everything and go. Uh, plans for you. But he doesn't really show him where he's going. And so I was like, well, maybe it's like Abraham. We don't know. How do we know? We're like, this is so, uh, so open. And so in New, New Jersey, where we're at, we went to this church that uh, Sam's aunt goes to. Don't know the pastor, don't know anyone. My wife had much more wisdom to actually pray that morning that God would speak uh, through this pastor in this church. And the sermon that morning was on Abraham. I was like, dang it. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, and the whole sermon was like almost as close as you can get to audibly hearing God speak. And it's hard to think about when God blesses you immensely and having to be okay with giving them back and talking about how God gave Abraham a promise through a son and he gives him Isaac. And then in the story, even though the story God says, now I want you to sacrifice him back. 
in the whole time, like, gosh, man, like, about nine years ago, God gave me a vision on, for a trucking in this church and blessed me immensely. And uh, God's just been saying, give it back. So, um, after church, uh, came to the decision that our time here is done. And uh, got back, and two days later, I met with Jesse and Wayne in his office and gave him a resignation about a week and a half ago. And I was dreading that conversation. Couldn't sleep for a couple days. And, um, and just thinking about wrestling with the Lord, what does it look like to give back these blessings he's given us? And so we're going to be selling uh, what we have. And uh, I don't know where we're going. I don't know what I'm going to do for a job. I don't know any of this. I just feel like God's saying, like, are you willing to give up what I've given you? And that includes, like, this church. Uh, so I will be moving on. There's a bunch of details that are going to be shared. And, uh, but I met with Jesse again this week and just said, hey, man, I would really like to just have an opportunity to share of what God has done through this church. And as I'm on my way out, to encourage you guys. Um, and so I think the best way is just to share a little bit of my testimony. I want to share so much, but I can't, and I don't think you want me to. Um, but about nine, nine, ten years ago, ten years ago this December was coming up, I was at Moody Bible Institute, uh, and I was at that school. I grew up in a Christian home in Grand Rapids, Michigan. We have a handful of churches in Truckee, but in Grand Rapids, Michigan, you have a single street with a hundred-some churches. That's one street. Um, I grew up in a very strong, healthy Christian family, um, but I was, uh, I was a Pharisee. I was super legalistic. I was a kid who always knew what you ought to do, what's right and what's wrong, and if you didn't do what's right, you just beat yourself up. And so I moved on to college, and halfway through college, my friend Johnny Wong, who's a missionary we support, he's like, hey, I want you to take a semester off to go snowboarding and share about Jesus. I was like, that's going to be great. It's going to fly great with my parents. Hey, I'm going to take school off to go to California to go snowboarding. Um, but it was like God has given me immense like, love for these guys. That Four of us came out here, and we loaded up my Ford Taurus with a trailer, not knowing uh, cars have, you can only tow so much, and we maxed it out. I finished my semester and my finals, and the next morning at 5 a.m. got up in my Ford Taurus with three of my closest friends and drove 2,500 miles to Truckee, California. Never been here. Have no, we had no place to stay, no jobs, nothing, didn't know anyone. We were just a plan that God's going to provide. And he did. And there's, I could have a whole time just sharing what God did in Truckee in that first time I was here. But I do remember the first time I went and got gas when I first opened up the cover to my car. Somebody stuck a $100 bill in there. And that's the first of a hundred stories. When I came to Truckee, California, we arrived here. Uh, we came Sunday morning to this church, sat in this room, and Wayne introduced us and shared our story. Uh, within two days, God gave us five jobs. Uh, and then at the end of the service, a family, the Gouldings, uh, said, hey, we know you guys need a place to stay. We have a huge house. We'll give you a place to stay for two months with no rent. 
never met us, didn't know any of us. We're college guys who are dumb enough to like leave everything and just travel 2,000 miles. We have minimal plans other than like God's got it. Um, and then God used her Bible church to consistently bless and care for us. And the time I came out here, I was a broken person. I was in the season of just like so much hurt uh, in a semester of school. I came off the summer of having a, a relationship that ended horribly. I felt guilt and shame for the first time in my life. Grew up uh, very pharisaical. And uh, my understanding of the gospel was a shadow. It was very anemic. It was narrow of what the gospel actually is connected to grace. And so I came out here, spent the winter, went back for a month, and then I was like, man, I go back for the summer. And so I grabbed one of my friends who was with me previously, brought a new friend, lived at North Star. Um, same thing, came out of nothing, and God used some people in this room to take care of us. And so that's when I volunteered to be part of the youth group and, and share or, um, or serve underneath Jesse when he was a youth pastor, and just fell in love with this group, with the kids, with that ministry. And so, this is where it gets probably emotional for me, but there was a turning point uh, looking back that first summer here of God just opened up the gospel into a way I've never understood or felt. It was at the end of youth group on a Wednesday after high school was done, and I was with Jesse, we were talking, and one of the kids came up, and he was sharing about, man, just some heavy sin, man. It was like, it was about being in pornography and all this lust that's going on. And so I'm watching Jesse pastor, and so in my head, I'm thinking, well, what you got to do is, you got to stop, and you think oh, how damaging this is, which it is, but you got to get rid of your phone, you need to get accountability partners, you need to do all these different disciplines, and I just had this whole list of what you have to do to manage this sin. And uh, what tore me up was Jesse said to him, he's, he started off like this, you know what? You know in the middle of that sin, God loves you. I thought, you can't say that. You laughed, but I was like, you can't say that. Because I grew up, and like, here's what you ought to do. Don't you see how you're ruining your life? You're ruining other relationships. Like, you should, you should beat yourself up over this, and you need to have some discipline in your life. And that just, it just ate away at me. And uh, to hear that God loves you in the midst of your sin. Exactly what I needed. And it's a beautiful thing, like the gospel is good news. That you aren't lovely. You're not easy to like to care for. We are rebellious. We make mistakes. Uh, we're adulterous. We leave the first love, the greatest love, constantly. And he loves you. And uh that's the first time I felt that. And the law, the law just crushes you. And it's the first time I felt grace. What does it mean to apply the grace of God to you? 
And like going down this journey for the past nine years at this church, I've seen the grace of God just doesn't save you, but it sustains you. What does it mean to live in grace? Because I think what happens is like, yeah, we know we're saved by grace. Beautiful, amen. But now I have to live by the law. I have to do it. I have to grow close to the Lord. Now here's my standard. I'm a Christian. This is what I got to do. And God just stripped me of that thinking. Like now it's always been grace. And the Christian process is learning to rediscover the gospel daily. You aren't good enough. You are making mistakes. You will injure those you love. And even though you're not good enough, it's okay. But Christ is. And I think God has used you and people in this church and being a pastor to just refine me. And it's still going, of course. Refining my understanding of what the gospel really means. It's not about what you ought to do. It is what has been done for you. Christ has redeemed you. Christ loves you. Even when you cheat on God, and we do it constantly, he does not leave you. And that's just filtered down through like my marriage. It's filtered down how I teach kids. It's filtered down how I do counseling. I have times when kids will come into my office and be like, man, I was on Tinder, and I hooked up with a random person last night, and it's eating me away. And I was like, man, God loves you. Rather than being like, how could you do that? I'm like, if you're truly broken over it, God loves you. And uh, it's been, uh, God's been so good in teaching me. And that's partially why when I was first in that car, I felt God speaking to me was so hard. Because it's uh, so close to my heart, this church. And uh, so sorry. If you hate men crying, you just got to <laughs> deal with it. Uh, and... Uh, <clears throat> Sierra Baba Church is unique. It's not the only show in town, of course. But there's, I do, on my way out, God's transitioned me out of this church. We have been immensely blessed with elders and deacons. Elders who really know what the other side is like without Christ. Men who have gone through brokenness. Men who don't allow peripheral things to become the main things. And there's so many churches, I've been part of two churches who have split. Um, and just been devastated. And so coming out here is refreshing after being part of two churches that split. Elders who realize the centrality of the gospel of grace and that Christ is all in all and to give you the mind of Christ to make your decisions and choose what you do and don't do and how to think about things. The elders have done an amazing job keeping what is central, central and the peripheral things. Keep those on the outside. And that has guarded this church from a lot of what could be problems or divisions. And so even with my dad comes out here, he always says, every time I come through the church, I feel tremendous freedom. And that's what people should feel in this room, tremendous freedom. Because the gospel is a good news of freedom. Um, and it's so sad because of not to follow my parents or anything, but part of like how I grew up and how God's made me. Uh, many people see his rules or laws is the centrality of Christ that just robs away from the beauty of it. But actually, the law of God is actually meant to free you. 
uh, his ways are best. His ways are most joyful. His ways are ones that actually free you to be who you're created to be, not to stifle that. And so I just want to read a passage that came up when I was listening to the Bible on this app called Streetlights, which is amazing. And uh, as a recovering Pharisee, (laughs) this passage came up. It's in Colossians 2, verse 11. When you came to Christ, you were circumcised, but not by physical procedure. Christ performed a spiritual circumcision, cutting away at your sinful nature. For you were buried with Christ when you were baptized. With him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. You were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. When God made you alive of Christ, he forgave you of all your sins, canceled the record of, of debt against you, and took it by nailing it to the cross. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by this victory over them on the cross. So do not let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths, for these rules are only shadows of the reality that has come, and Christ himself is that reality. To let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial or the worship of angels saying they have visions about these things. Their sinful minds have made them proud, and they are not connected to Christ, the head of the body. For he holds the whole body together with his joints and ligaments, and it grows as God nourishes it. So your Bible church, we have died with Christ, and he has set us free from the powers of this world. So why do you keep on following the rules of this world, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Such rules are mere human teachings about these things that deteriorate as they use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. As I was listening to that while I was working in the coffee shop, that just struck my heart. The whole time, the change I wanted was like self-discipline and working things out and choosing not to do certain things. And then like over time, just felt condemnation and I felt just true shame and guilt and how I don't measure up, I'm not good enough, and why can't I get things right? And it finally came to a place like heart transformation has to start with God first and the gospel of grace. He transforms your heart, then you live. And I was just doing the opposite way around. Even though I knew the gospel was by grace, my actions were the opposite. I have to do these things. I have to. I have to stay away from the consequences. And so God has just completely just stripped that from me. He still is doing some more work. But I just want to say thank you to everyone in this room uh, that we felt loved with, cared for, and seen the gospel in action. And God wants to continue doing that through Survival Church. Part of like this morning process is not being able to be on staff and see that and be a part of what God is doing through this church. But I really do believe what Wayne says, that like God's best days for the church are ahead. Heck Yes. My time is here is done, which is a good thing. 
Because if I try to hold on to this position when God's calling us to take a step of faith and follow him, shame on me. And you will suffer for it. And my family will suffer for it. And so I'm praying, like, hard. God, just bring another man, like, behind me, who comes next, uh, that God will use to bless you guys. But also, whoever comes next, they're going to need your blessing. They're going to need your friendship. They're going to need you as you are part of their process of maturing and growing. And as a pastor, like, I'm taking way too much time. I'm so sorry. I told God I didn't want to be a pastor because I've, I saw my church go through a split that lost hundreds of people and saw people tear each other apart. And I see what human beings can do, especially in the church. And I say, I don't want that. Through Street Bible Church, God changed that. And part of it was, like, being faithful. Like, I don't want to be a pastor, but God, if you want me to, I'm willing. And so the past six years, I've been, like, holding on to Jesus real tight. And uh, your pastors need so much prayer, so much grace. Uh, and the staff here, you are tremendously blessed. Treat them well and value them. Because as Scripture says, they're guardians over your souls. And you deserve immense amount of honor. And so I just want to say thank you from my wife and I. We felt tremendously loved. And uh, God is good. And the gospel of grace is deeper, more beautiful than we can imagine. And it has so many facets. And it's not just about getting saved. Uh, the gospel truly does apply to every single situation of life. Uh, and I just pray that we will continue pursue Jesus uh, and see how the gospel is truly life transforming. So, love you guys. <clears throat> so, a couple of things just I would like to mention and want to pray for, for John and Sam. Sam, you want to come on up? Is Riker with you? No. No, you don't have to go. <laughs> Leave him over there. Uh, this is Sam, if you've not met Sam. And um, John has been uh, an incredible asset to us as a church, an incredible friend uh, to me personally. Um, we have spent a lot of time together and refining each other. And I, I couldn't ask for a better transition in some ways in the sense that there are a lot of churches when they go through things like this, it's, the youth guy's tired or he took another job or he's upset with something we're doing internally. And, and it's amazing to just hear that a man has come before you and said, you know what, God has put something on my heart. I don't know what I'm doing. But what he does know is that God um, uses the scattering of his saints to grow his church. And wherever he goes, we go. And we will always be behind him. And I know he'll always be behind us. He was even sharing some dreams with me this week about ways that maybe he could continue to invest in Sierra Bible. And I said, just keep rebuilding everything in the church before you leave, you know, because he's done such a beautiful job here. I'm joking. but um. And so here's what I want you to know just going forward, because some of you are parents and some of you are high school kids in the room, and I just want you to kind of know where we're headed and what we're praying and what we're doing. One is we just shared a lot about grace, and um, we want to have a lot of grace with John and Sam as they journey over the next couple months to figure out what it looks like for them to exit. They have a house they need to sell. Uh, he needs a job. Um, and we want to journey with him and give him some time over the next couple months to still be here 
to connect with the kids while he's exiting uh, and to pour into them, however long that takes. It could be a month, it could be two months, it could be three months. We don't know. Uh, but what we do know is we're committed to just walking through that process. The other thing we're committed to is we're committed to staffing the position. We're committed deeply to the kids in our church. I did youth ministry for a long time, and I have a heart for high school kids and junior high kids that because of that, um, that I just, I just know we need someone here who loves these kids and cares for them. And I would say specifically because some of you kids are in the room. This is a tremendous opportunity for you to practice what we preach, that Jesus has always been your senior guy. Jesus has always been your pastor. And to rise up to the occasion and to serve your church because you're important to us. Not because of what you provide us, but because of who you are in Christ. You're very valued here in this church. Again, let me say it again. Not for what you do for us. We love you because we love you. And I enjoy seeing the kids run around here and seeing what God's doing in them. And here's the best case scenario in my mind that I'm praying for. I'm praying God reveals the right guy and that that right guy hears from the Lord and he's able to come on, on sooner than later and partner with John for a couple months, however long that takes, and so that there's a clean transition there between the two guys. If that's what God has, thank you, Jesus. If not, it could be a longer process. And so I would just ask you as parents and kids to be patient. Again, we're here for you. We want to continue to provide a safe place for you to learn about Jesus. And we want to bring someone in that, that is the right fit for you. We don't want someone coming in, you, you hate the guy. Um, we don't want that. And I told the staff this week, I said to the staff, I said, okay, this is a great opportunity now for us to practice grace. Because when we, when we bring someone else new in, it's a whole other personality. It's a whole other gift of strengths and a whole other whole uh, list of not-so-strong uh, strengths. And all of us on staff, we have our things we're good at. We have our things we're not good at. And, uh, and so we're trying to prepare for that and pray for that as well. So continue to pray for the church, pray for our youth program, and pray for John and Sam. And let's rejoice in what God has for them. It's hard to say goodbye, but at the same time, um, it is a, a, just a, a good sense that God is indeed doing something that is good for them. And I do think in the long run, um, we'll be stronger as a church because of it. And John and I have talked about that. That's not a bad thing to say. That That's the kingdom of God. That's what we hope for. We want for John to go and be blessed and be more fruitful wherever he goes. And we want our church to be more fruitful as well. And we exist here as a church, let, by, by, let, let, like to be just super like frank and clear, we have what we have and we are what we are because Jesus is way too gracious to us. And we have this thing called SBC because God is, is better to us than we deserve. Right, John? How's SBC doing? Better than it deserves. We're not perfect, but we know the one who is perfect. We want to keep focusing on him. So if you would, would you stand with me uh, as we pray for John and Sam? And let's pray for them and their uh, next journey. Jesus, we, um, we come before you humbled Humbled, Lord, that you uh, have done a great work in John and Sam, Lord. It's been a great privilege for me to be a part of helping this man become a pastor, to having the great privilege of doing his wedding and having the opportunity to dedicate their beautiful baby boy, who was a tremendous gift of your grace to them. Thank you for what they have brought to the table here, for the way that they have glorified you and served you well and given a tremendous example to families and parents and those in our church who have watched 
of what it is to love Jesus, to fight through difficult times, to wrestle through hardships, and to still come out saying that God is good. I pray now, Lord, as they move forward, that you provide above and beyond huge blessings for them. Lord, that the doors would open as you see fit, that the home would sell as you see fit, Lord, and that we would all yield to your will and ask that you would ultimately glorify it. We release John and Sam from this place and into your ultimate hands where they've always belonged and ask for your will to be done, not ours. But Lord, may you indeed be glorified and we trust you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you give them a hand for their service? Please.